House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Joining us today, as we said earlier, uh, we've got the author of The Coldest Warrior, a novel. It's Paul Vidic. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Um, Paul, now this is quite the, quite the story, and of course it's it, it's it's kind of it's based on the true story of uh, Wormwood. Um, so, how did you get into Wormwood enough to write this book um, centered on it? Um, I, I'll try and keep the backstory short. Um, Frank Olson, uh, who is the man who worked for the CIA who was murdered in 1953 was my uncle, my, um, by marriage, my uh, mother's sister's husband. So we were very close to the family. And Eric Olson, who's the principal interviewee in Wormwood, is a, is a close cousin. And I've been um, familiar with the case you know, since it really became public in 1975, and and I was was sort of drawn by the mystery of the case. So now, um, so what what is your thought on the case itself? Like, um, do you, do you guys feel like you know the the real answers behind the story, or do you, is it still something you're you're not really sure of? Um, the, there's a lot that's unknown and there's, um, a lot that is known. And, um, I guess what I would say is that the, the case sort of, um, evolved in three stages. The first stage was 1953 to 1975, where the family really knew nothing. Um, Frank Olson had gone to New York. Uh, in the company of a CIA agent, although they didn't know he was a CIA agent at the time. And three, five days later, he's shipped back to Frederick, Maryland in a coffin. And he's told that he either jumped or fell from the hotel room. That's all the family knew um, for 22 years. In 1975, there was a brief uh, paragraph at the end of a very long document, the Rockefeller Commission report, which looked into um, the CIA domestic misdeeds for the, you know, the two decades before that. And in that paragraph, there's a mention of um, a man who, a scientist who fell out of his hotel room after having been given LSD. The family said, oh, that sounds, you know, very much like Frank Olson. It was confirmed it was Frank Olson, and that proceeded to develop um, – you know, a whole lot of additional information. The family met with President Ford. They met with CIA Director William Colby. Um, but what emerged from that and what was written about it at the time was that it looked like Frank Olson had had some sort of psychotic episode of 10 days after having been given LSD. And the, the narrative became that he committed suicide. Um, however, the third phase, which followed that, um, began to reveal all sorts of information that was inconsistent with a suicide. Um, and my cousin had 
his father exhumed in 1994, and the forensic pathologist examined the body, found a strange hematoma on the head, and he concluded that Frank Olson had been hit in the head, stunned in the hotel room, and thrown out the window. Um, and all the information that's come about since then has basically pointed to murder, and none of it has pointed away. But um, having said that, there is no single bit of evidence that conclusively um, establishes that was murder. So, of course, you know, as somebody who was close to the story and, and the story kept evolving pretty much every year, and now it's in its sixth decade, um, I was drawn to it. And um, I decided to write about it uh, because it, it, it encompassed a number of very interesting points about the CIA and about the Cold War. Um, and just briefly, when I first tried to write about it, I, I did it from the point of view of my cousin, which was to say I tried to write a story about um, his search for the answer to the question, how did my father die and why? And, and that became uh, somewhat problematic because I was too close to him. There were things I probably needed to say in the story that I couldn't say because of the family connection. Um, and it also never answered the question, how did he die and who killed him? So I decided to rethink the story and I decided to write it from the point of view of men within the CIA, um, the, the murderers. And and it really then that's what the story is today. It's sort of a power struggle within the CIA, the people who were responsible for what happened in '53, and then others who were appalled by what happened in 1953. And that plays out as sort of a as a as a thriller within the CIA as to who's who's going to be held responsible, who's going to be accountable, and um, hmm. and that was that ended up being the novel I wrote. So writing it this form, like in a, in a fiction novel form, was that um, your way of being able to say and uh, say things in the book without, um, you know, um, getting in trouble? You might say. Yeah, it's there's a wonderful quote from Albert Camus, which is that um, fiction is the lie we tell to tell the truth, and um, I sort of took that point of view, which is I, I wrote a story that's based on the Frank Olson case, but there are new characters as, you know, an invented story. Um, but I was able to write a murder mystery in the course of that. And um, what I've discovered is that there were people who, you know, before the novel came out, sort of believed the suicide um, story. And however, after they read my novel and the postscript in the novel that it's based on true events, they simply assume that it was murder. And in some way, the, the contribution of the novel to the case is that it begins to color the way that people look at what is known about the Frank Olson case. What do you, what, but I, I never had any, I, I, I was never threatened. I never, you know, I never had any concerns for myself, although it is a question that people have asked me. Um, but, uh, no, I've never, I've never yeah. felt, uh, at all at risk. Well, why would it matter now? Like, um, in, in, with, um, 
the book, the story, the, the, the murder or death, however it really occurred, and, and Wormwood and all that, um, why is it... Um, why is it that, and I mean that from the CIA side, like why is it they, they can't just come out and say what happened? Because everyone's um, dead, like everyone's dead, like all those agents are all gone. And, correct, and, everyone's gone. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, for one, I, I'm not sure that there were great records in the CIA. Um uh, that that really established exactly what happened. Um, the the way that this plays out in the novel is that there's something called the Office of Security, which was this mysterious part of the CIA, sort of mysterious part within a mysterious organization, um, that um, was tasked to do the the act, um, but that most people in the CIA who were even familiar with this would not have known about this. Um, it's sort of the black ops group. So there's one question of, you know, what do the archives in the CIA actually hold? Um, uh, but the second thing is the, the CIA never, in, unless it was forced to reveal stuff by Congress or otherwise, it's, it's not in its um, charter. It's not in its, um, uh, you know, the way it views itself um, as an organization that wants to reveal anything about its past. Um, hmm. But it's, and it's also, it's one of, it's, it's a particularly difficult case in some ways um, because uh, it, it, it would be um, the first instance of what I'll call extrajudicial execution in the United States. And the only example of that. Uh, by extrajudicial execution, I mean, if you remember Jamal Khashoggi, who was a Saudi who was killed in the Turkish embassy, or there are many examples of Putin's KGB or NSV um, killing Russians in London. And these are instances of um, official state-sponsored um, targeted killings. Uh, Mossad does it as well. But the United States has never admitted to doing that and for the most part isn't an actor in this type of behavior. But every other country in the world does. And we sort of hold ourselves to a higher moral standard uh, about this. So to, have, to admit that such a thing happened would go against, you know, all the ways that we think of ourselves as a country, you know, the civility, you know, the moral rectitude. So it's, it's a particularly difficult case for the government and the CIA particularly. Hmm. And in a real can of worms as well. I mean, if, if we, they start talking about this, what are the other things that they've uh, kept secret? Correct. Correct. So, so, what do you what do you think people should get out of this story? Like, what what is it you're hoping that they uh, walk away with when they read this or when they know about the story? Well, it's the 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 story the the principal character in the story, a guy named Jack Gabriel, is in the CIA, and and he's a a long time um, intelligence officer. 
believes in the mission of the agency. And he, when he learns about what happened inside the agency, is appalled. And what's happened is that some of the people who are involved in, in this story, uh, who were involved in 1953, have gone off to, you know, the big jobs, somebody in the White House, somebody else in the FBI. And Jack Gabriel takes it upon himself to, to out the truth um, and then puts himself at risk in doing so. Um, so in some ways, the story of the novel is that you know people, good people can make a difference, and there is a, a reason to stand up. Um, and sometimes people, um, as in this story, the murderers get caught up in following orders, um, not being told what they're having to do. Um, but if you've ever worked in a big corporation or in a government agency, it's very easy to sort of get caught up in um, the, the the idea that you're all doing something and you may be uncomfortable with it, but who's the first one who's going to raise their hand and say, no, this is right. It's very tough to do. I worked in corporate America for 20 years, and and uh, there's a sort of um, you know herd-like mentality that goes along. But single individuals who have a uh, you know, sense of their their responsibility to do the right thing can make a difference. And I'd say that to me was the message of the book, that um, you can live and work in a, in, a corrupt, in a corrupt situation, but still um, hold on to, you know, your, your sort of moral compass. You know, but when you look at the times, like the you know fifty three to seventy three, and and all of the um, you know the Cold War, the assassinations of of, of leaders, the um, Watergate, um, and and now this story as well, um, it, it seemed like a pretty dark time and pretty pretty dishonest on the government side. It, it, it just it, it appears that way. Um, so do you think this is just a lone event, or do you think this is sort of something that's... No, it was definitely not a lone event, and, and it's also important to keep in mind that the the Cold War from 1950 or 49, when the Berlin Airlift happened, all the way until the early 70s, was a, um, was a very threatening thing for um, people in Washington, people in Moscow. He had the Korean War at the same time. So it was a hot war and a cold war. And people felt existentially threatened and nuclearly threatened. Um, and, and it's hard to imagine that world today, because even though there's a lot of danger in the world, it, it's not really state-sponsored in the same way that you know the, the West and the East faced off against each other in the Cold War. Um, so today's, you know, terrorism is threatening in its own way, but um, there was a sense of mutual annihilation in, in the 50s. And that led people to do, you know, some very extreme things in, in pursuit of, um, you know, preserving, you know, our way of life. And it's hard to imagine that now, but when you go back and read um, biographies and autobiographies of Dulles and Colby and others, you know, you see how, how dark a time it really was. 
And, and communism was a real um, fear in the U.S. at that time as well, and McCarthyism and all that. Um, and, and absolutely. It, yeah, and it must have had a huge influence on this as well. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, it was very threatening, um, it, uh, chilling, uh, very chilling for for people living through it at the time. I, you know, I just wonder if it was kind of it, they made too much out of it. I don't like the whole McCarthyism and stuff where they were trying to uh, search out communists and find them everywhere. Um, they, I think they probably really overdid it, and that caused a lot of the fear. Yeah, it wasn't just communists. If you were gay, gay man in the 1950s in Washington, you were persecuted. Um, it, it, it was a... It was a very different time and a very dark time. Um, I, yeah, because they, they, they made reference to that as well, almost like uh, the, the uh, in, in, in Wormwood, too. I saw that where they uh, said he was light on his loafers, you know, the other uh, CIA <laughs> agent that he was in the room with when he, when he uh, went to, got, fell to his death, let's say. Um, and it was funny because I never even understood that term. I didn't get that term, uh, light on his feet, in life at first. Um, I guess that was a common term back then, I you know. Well, there were all sorts of ways in which people sort of had, had ways to describe activity and behavior that was not, you know, at that time not acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> so um, The wink and the nod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Light on us lovers. Um, so your characters in here that you that you have um, that you've created in here in in the story, um, did you take them after real people? And if so, I guess you don't really want to talk about who they really are. Um, but how how would you um, take from live people and turn them into characters? Like, what did you decide to use and not use? Well, it's a the book is a mix of characters based on real historical persons and um, fictional characters. Um, so I have a character called the president who was President Ford, although he just appears as the president. Um, the same is the director. The director happened to be based on Bill Colby, who was the director of Central Intelligence in 1975, um, and uh, James Coffin, who was the director of, in the book, of uh, counterintelligence was James Jesus Angleton, and the principal character I relied on was a guy named, uh, in the book he's Wiesenthal, but he's, um, um, in real life, a guy named Gottlieb, who was in charge of the CIA's technical services. Um, and they're the ones who did all the poisons. He's the one who flew to Congo to poison Lumumba. He made Castro's um, poison cigar. Um, and he was also the one who ran MKUltra uh, and um, was Frank Wilson's boss. Um, and he's the one who administered the LSD in that weekend in 1953. So he became an interesting character. And in fact, there's a book uh, by uh, Stephen Kinsler called Poisoner in Chief that um, talks about this guy, Sidney Gottlieb. A fascinating guy uh, in his own right. Um, and I give him, you know, 
I give him a, you know, he's not a, he's not a, a all bad or all good. He's a, I, I create a, I try and create a complicated character out of him as he was in real life. He was a agronomist, um, you know, a first generation Jew from Brooklyn who married the daughter of a Protestant minister. Um, after he left the CIA, he and his wife traveled through India supporting, um, you know, homeless and living, you know, uh, sort of a meager life um, in in pursuit of, um, you know, Buddhism. So he's this complex guy who, on the one hand, did some of the most, you know, dastardly things for the CIA. And the other hand, was a man in search of his soul and in a religion. Um, and that to me was, you know, th- th- those are the people who are fascinating, you know, and that's why in some ways the CIA is a fascinating thing to explore because you have very smart people there who come from interesting backgrounds. In my case, all the characters had gone to Yale, studied English literature, um, and then found themselves in the CIA. Uh, it, it found that... Um, their mission was to do good in the world, but to do good, they also had to do bad. Um, and that, that to me, has, has been one of the things that has drawn me back to the Central Intelligence Agency um, as, a, as a source of material for a novel. What kind of feedback do you expect from this? Like, this just came out. I just got this, I think, two days ago on audio. or Yeah, so, um, so what kind of... A, you know, bite back. Do you expect? Do you, do you expect anything from CIA or, or supporters or anything like that? Uh, I don't expect anything from the CIA. Um, you know, it is a it's a novel, and it's meant to be both um, entertaining and instructive. Uh, a lot of readers have enjoyed um, that. I I it's not just a thriller, but it's a book that tries to, um, you know, some, draw some interesting, um, you know, instructive, uh, you know, views of what it is like to be you know, a CIA agent with the responsibility for, for secrets. Um, so it's not just, you know, good versus evil. It's uh, very much about um, complex human relationships, um, the major character, Jack Gabriel, has a family, and you know the family relationships are important uh, in the novel, as they are obviously in the lives of every CIA officer. But it's not something that usually gets written about. But you think about it: a guy in the CIA goes home, his wife rarely knows what he really does. I mean, she may know he works for the CIA, but she doesn't know what he does on a day-to-day basis. And children of CIA officers officers are usually not informed what their father does until they're teenagers. So I've talked to a number of children of former officers who are now adults, and it's this great mystery in their lives as to what their mother or father did. Um, And that that creates a sort of world of secrecy, not just the secrets they do in the world, but the secrets they keep from friends and family. And and that to me is... um, you know, that's a very interesting, that's why 
you know, characters in the CIA are interesting to me. They live in multiple levels of deception. Um, and sometimes they, you know, are deceiving themselves, which is an even deeper level of deception. Do you, do you actually, um, did you have um, some CIA officers that you uh, drew from, like you actually got to talk to and got involved in their family life and, and kind of how they, um, you know, worked it with family and kids and wives and parents and stuff like that? Uh, n not in person, um, but I did read, I, I read a, a fair number of biographies and autobiographies of intelligence officers, and they are fascinating because um, the authors use their memoir, basically, or the biography, to... Uh, talk about the challenges of the work and to talk about the challenges in their life. Um, and, and one of the most fascinating biographies was um, a book uh, about Aldrich Ames, who was one of the Russian moles, probably the, the most important Russian mole in the CIA, who was outed, I think, in the 80s. Um, and... You know, it was fascinating to to read how he got to a place where he wanted to betray his country. A lot of it had to do with his family, you know, a mistress, money, resentments against his boss. You know, all these, you know, deeply human things <laughs> that you realize affect every every individual and every CIA officer is an individual, so they have all of this other baggage in their life that that uh, you know affects the way that they uh, often go about doing business. And, and so, reading those was really quite interesting. And William Colby's uh, autobiography, "Honorable Men," is one that I highly recommend. Um, he was a Catholic, um, you know, went to Princeton very well educated. Um, and at the end of his life, and he died mysteriously in Chesapeake Bay, but at the end of his life, he, like many old spies, began to have regrets and doubts about his work. Uh, if you remember, he was in charge of the Phoenix program, which basically led to the death of over 20,000 South Vietnamese. And he carried that on his conscience um, you know, until, his, until, he, until the end of his life. So, what do you think the uh, the biggest surprise is? What, what what people will be shocked or most surprised by uh, when reading something like your book uh, about agents and what they do? Um, well, I guess what I would hope they would be touched by is the the humanity that um, all these people have and how. Uh, they bring they bring to the office you know their personal lives and those and the the elements of their personal lives sh help shape you know how they uh, how they think about the world and how they think about going about their business. Um, so and that's not usually how you think about spies. You, know, you right. think about spies in a very different way. 
Yeah. Do you think we've gone too far but uh, with, with spies and CIA? Like um, more than half the books you read on uh, the JFK assassination or RFK and all these things. And Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, there's so many theories that he was, um, you know, a victim of MK Ultra and LSD, um, you know, as well, and, and that he was, uh, you know, uh, brainwashed to do what he did and, and uh, there's just so much conspiracy on that side of it. Do you think that's really exaggerated, or do you, do you think there's a lot of truth to it? I don't know. I mean, I think people are fascinated by mystery. Um, you know, and you know, the JFK is assassination is going to go down as, as something that's, you know, everything that's ever going to be known about it is known, and, and you know, people continue to be um, some people continue to be interested in uh, poking holes in it um, so I think it's just a, it's a it's a human inclination to you know look into um, stubborn mysteries and try and uh, try imagine what's missing uh, that what's not known um, So how do you think the CIA's changed? Do you think they still do the same sort of operations, or do you think there's, it's a completely different group now? Well, I think it's gone through a couple of changes. Uh, the CIA of the early 50s was a small, pre-elite group, people who'd gone to uh, Ivy League schools, um, who were recruited in order to um, you know, give intelligence to the White House. Uh, there was no intelligence during World War II, um, Pearl Har Harbor happened because we didn't know anything about the Japanese. So, um, you know, after World War II, the CIA was created in order to develop intelligence to help make the White House make decisions. Um, and it operated that way, uh, obviously kept growing. Probably sometime in the 60s, it became much more of a bureaucracy. Um, and bureaucracies operate differently than small elite groups. Um, their rules, their regulations, um, they had to recruit a whole different group of people because the Ivy League couldn't produce enough of the people. Um, and I think uh, it, it, it's, it's changing yet again now um, because it's... Uh, you know, so much of the intelligence that's being gathered now is not human intelligence, but human. Um, as you think of spies going around trying to, you know, recover documents, this is about uh, masses amounts of information that's gathered electronically or it's a satellite. And the CIA has to, most of the CIA or a great deal of it, is trying to sort through all of this. So they become analysts of a sort. Um, and uh, and then from time to time, you know, the pendulum swings like it did after 9-11. And suddenly the CIA finds itself being um, recruited to do things like they did in Iraq, you know, with Abu Ghraib, you know, the, the waterboarding. Um, but um, and so from time to time, it becomes a tool of, you know, whatever the incumbent president wants it to be. Um. Hmm. It's 
crazy. The um, now, how is how is Eric Olson doing now, and and what's he going to be? Uh, do you know what he's going to continue to do? Is he still looking for um, this to be resolved publicly? I think his what what he I don't think we'll ever get a definitive answer as to what happened in the hotel room, but. Um, I think his goal would be to have Olson's death officially categorized as murder, um, either by the um, um, the the New York City Police Department um, or by others who would be in a you know responsible position to to do that. Um, and I know he's. He's actively pursuing that, um, so sort of to create a, a definitive statement about, um, you know, what happened to him. Uh, I think that's that's probably his goal at this time. Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that I don't, I don't know if it'll ever happen, but right. Yeah, you you don't know. I mean, uh, it's it's the further away you get um the more uh the, the the greater the distance some in some ways the greater the clarity but also the more attenuated the facts um but i think the the changing the the way it's uh it's described is really a political act um so the support of senators and others you know would be an important part of this so what was the uh, the best piece of work done on this story? Um, do you think um, um, th there was, the, what was it, H.P. Uh, Alparelli did that book, um, um, uh, Wormwood was out, um, there's all sorts of uh, different things on about uh, Frank Olson. What was kind of your best resource, do you think? Um, the Wormwood was a wonderful um, conversation with Eric Olson and you really got um, a look into his mind and the struggle that he's gone through over the very many years. Uh, so that's a very, and it's a very powerful document film. Um, the, the stars report um, in which he discussed his forensic uh, findings when he exhumed the body is very good. Um, the 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 Kinsler book, Stephen Kinsler's book, Poisoner in Chief, has one chapter on Frank Olson, and and that's pretty good. Um, although I have to say, he didn't. Uh, I had lunch with Kinsler, and you know, we talked about his book, talked about the case. In his book, he doesn't really come out and say he was murdered. So I I asked him three questions over lunch. I said. Do you um, um, believe that the CIA was capable of murder in 1953? And he said, yes. I said, do you think or believe that Frank Olson was um, in possession of important state secrets, which, if came out, would be extremely embarrassing to the government? And he said, yes. And I asked, uh, do you think they believed that Frank Olson wasn't unstable? And he said, yes. And then he paused and he said, 
in my gut he was murdered. Um, there was a means and there was a motive. Um, so, you know, the Kinsler chapter is a good chapter. Um, and then there are many other shorter pieces. And then there's the Abarelli book, which I've read a couple of times. It's a, he threw everything into that book. Um, and it's, it's got a lot of facts, but it's also very confusing. Um, so, uh, and he, he, like a lot of people, invented things. It starts off with a conversation between my aunt and my grandfather. And I'm reading this, and I'm saying, he, he never knew my grandfather. How can he invent this conversation? So I had, I had some issues with that book. Um, but he did throw in a lot of facts, um, which he then assembled, you know, in his own way for an account. Yeah. Well, actually, and they mentioned like this, uh, the, um, they actually had a policy or um, well, like a handbook on how to murder for in the CIA in 53. Wasn't that with the hitting yes. on the head and throwing them out, out the window and stuff? So It was. It was uh, a memo on assassination written um, in 1953, and it was first found because some people were looking into what was happening in Guatemala in 53 with death squads. Um, I've read it. It's pretty chilling. Um, if it was to be written today, you'd, you'd, you know, it would be astounding. Um, and in fact, it says the most efficient way to kill somebody is to drop them from a height of 75 feet. And then when you see the body down there to say, oh, look, somebody fell, somebody fell. And call the, you know, an alarm is called out and suddenly you're the, the eager witness of having seen somebody jump. Um, so it's, and that, when that came out, it, it coincides, you know, exactly in, at the same time that, you know, Frank Olson, you know, went out the window. Um, so th there are, there's so many coincidences uh, in this story that point to murder um, and none of these coincidences actually point away from murder, which is sort of why I, as a writer, said, you know, I'm going to write this story as a murder. Hmm. You know, and they, they, they had to, uh, you, you wouldn't have a mem memorandum or a policy on how to, the best way to kill someone if you didn't have that in your mind, right? Or they Correct. Have, you know, and, and there was quite a few others uh, suggested in one word that the um were killed the same way right right so so i would say it's probably more than likely uh, so it's kind of suggested that it was because of the uh bio warfare um do you think that's a reality or do you think that's just kind of a, a gra grabbing hold of something well I think all the all the evidence of the last twenty years is that um, uh, biochemical warfare agents were used in Korea. It never been admitted by the government. Um, I don't think it was ever used, you know, in a actively offensive way, you know, in, in large in large measures. But I think it was probably done either on a test case or to create psychological havoc within the population. And, um, you know, it's very easy to have um, 
a couple hundred people die of anthrax to create fear behind the lines. Um, and I suspect that's, that's the way that um, biochemical warfare agents were used in Korea. And so it happened that Frank Olson's specialty was the um, weaponization of anthrax by creating aerosol deliveries. Um, so he would have known or suspected um, that this was going on. And that would have been, you know, if this had come out, having the United States having signed a number of treaties banning um, the use of biochemical warfare agents just, you know, two or three years before, if we were then to have been found to engage in it, would have been a, you know, uh, an extraordinary embarrassment, um, sort of a state secret that, you know, would would bring down governments, um, not our government, but it's, you know, at that, that scale. So for, for Frank Olson to have that information and then to be destabilized and for them to um, be concerned that he had this in his head um, would have made them very nervous. And it so happened that, you know, we were in Russia. We didn't have a gulag where you could send Frank Olson, where he would disappear. You know, we, we anything that would have been done here would have probably resulted in him saying things that would have brought that information out. So in some ways, you know, the extrajudicial execution was the only way to deal with an unstable man with state secrets in his head. Well, so was it the fact that he was unstable or they thought he was unstable after the LSD or was it because he knew something that nobody else did? Um, and, I, and I, I think... I, I was going to say, and I say know, that as in because the other agents that he was a part of and that group he was part of, wouldn't they have all known the same things? Um, <clears throat> they were pretty compartmentalized. Certainly Gottlieb would have known... Um, but uh, what what we do know is Frank Olson had you know um, wanted out. He had moral qualms about what he was doing, um, and I know that um, personally because uh, our family and the Olson family spent about three weeks at a summer camp that we had up in the Adirondacks in August 1953 just months before he died. And my father and Frank Olson were on the roof, um, re-roofing the, um, the cabin. They spent hours together talking. And, you know, my father's a professor, smart guy. Olson was a sort of health, um, you know, fell, hell well fellow who, who, you know, didn't really talk about things seriously. He, you know, was a, a joker. But he was very preoccupied and sober um, on their, in their conversations, and he'd begun reading the Bible. And he'd been go- begun thinking about Christian morality. Um, and you can imagine, if you're aware of something like biochemical warfare that's being used against innocent citizens, and you're wondering, you know, how does this relate to you individually as a guy who's partly responsible for this? Now, where, who do you talk to? How do you get this off your chest? Well, he couldn't talk to his wife, 
because he couldn't. He couldn't talk to his colleagues because to do so would have been sort of treasonous. Um, So he kept it in himself. And, And to some extent, he became paranoid. And of course, now, when he was brought to New York, the paranoia probably... Um, accelerated because they began asking him questions of, of you, know, you know what was he concerned about and 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 if you're afraid of the people you're you know, around that can make their concerns and their suspicions about you even more acute and I think it 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 spiraled down very quickly during his you know, five, four or five days of New York City. So what do you think the purpose of them giving uh, Dr. Olson LSD was? Like originally, what were they, th- were they testing him? Were they really trying to, were they trying to brainwash him in a way? Were they trying to figure out how, uh, what, what was, what was behind that? Uh, no, we don't really know. No one's ever really answered that question. Um, Eric has his view. I have my view. Uh, my view is that they, at the time, LSD was sort of as a truth drug. That if you gave it to somebody, would, they would talk openly about things. And uh, I suspect that they had some concerns about Frank Olson. In fact, there had been some move. Um, memos written about, you know, is he a security risk? So to give him LSD, thinking that maybe he'll talk about things and they'll get a better sense of, you know, what's on his mind, sort of fits into um, that, you know, that that thought pattern about what what was going on. Um, but you know, he 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 had a bad trip, um, you know. LSD can also make you paranoid. My guess is that, that that's partly what happened. Um, he didn't know who to trust. Um, and and that sort of exacerbated this cycle of suspicion and paranoia. Um, hmm. So I just wonder. So um, now, do you have a website or something that people can go and find you or do you promote that way? Yeah, it's uh, my name dot com, paulvidic dot com, p a u l v i d i c h dot com. Well, that's easy. Um, now, are you going to continue writing this sort of style? Are you going to do a, a, a follow up to this book, or kind of go further into it, or is this kind of like the 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 final for this? Well, I'm not. Gonna, I, my fourth book is coming out in February 2021. It's called The Mercenary. It doesn't deal with this case. It, uh, it, the, the, the major character um, is a guy named George Mueller, who is a minor character in The Cultist Warrior. Um, the novel deals with the CIA. It's set in Russia in 1985 um, when it was uh, before Perestroika when it was a denied city and the CIA was actively trying to uh, steal secrets from the Soviet military. So it's a very, it's an exciting book, um, still Cold War, still CIA, um, but uh, as opposed to a story about within the CIA, it's about 
the um, tit for tat between the KGB and the CIA. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed writing it. Oh, fantastic. Um, so what has Eric read, read the book, and what does he say? He, I sent it to him, you know, uh, and I said, you shouldn't read it. Because... <laughs> You're you're the only guy who who would read it and say this is wrong, you know, and this makes no sense. And uh, so he didn't read it uh, for a long time. But then I had a dinner. I hosted a dinner with some journalists and some publishers, and and I asked him to attend. Um, and he felt obligated to read the book before he attended. Um, and he finished the book in a couple of days, and he texted me you know, immediately after finishing, and he said he loved it. And uh, which, you know, delighted me because of all the people who could have, you know, had an opinion about the book. His opinion probably mattered more to me than anybody else's. Um, but he enjoyed the book. He thought it, you know, it portrayed the characters well. And he's obviously a character in the book. Um, so he, he liked it. And that, that was very meaningful to me. Oh, fantastic. Well, been, it's a very, very a good book and uh, very interesting, and I think uh, we recommend it totally. We'll have it put up on our website as well, and we'll link your website as well to ours, so people listening can do one click and then find you and find your book. So, Well, that's great. Thank you so that's much. That's what we do here. So Now, our guest has been Paul Vidic, and the book is The Coldest Warrior, a novel. Thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.